You know, I was thinking about this, something this week. As a culture, we are living in a culture where people are easily offended. Right? I mean, stuff goes up and, uh, you know, I mean, that a popular music star licks a donut in a store and suddenly nobody can ever buy her music again because we're all offended. None of us ate the donuts, but that happens. All right. Uh, a show from the 80s has something on it it's not supposed to have. Take it off TV, never watch it again because we're easily offended. And we I'm not talking about the values of each of those. We'll actually get into some of that on the way for the rest of the months. But I was just thinking about we get offended easily. So here's the question I have for you. What, what offends you? I mean, what's offensive to you? What is it that you turn your nose up at? Right? What, what is it that really gets under your skin and offends you? Now, the answer for me can be several things. Coming off a week of Centric Kid, I can tell you that third grade boys' rooms after a week of camp are offensive is what they are, right? I went in, we went in, we had to, you know, because you're an adult, you're supposed to be the responsible party here. And we, we had one room, and I won't name which of my sons, but it wasn't the oldest son. And so it was one of my sons was in that room with three friends. And they, you know, when they go to get clothes, they just throw everything out. And they don't think about it again till later on in the week. And I went into their room on the last day, and it was hot. I sent your kid this past week, and it was really hot. And so you got in, your clothes were wet. And they had taken pieces of clothing and put them into the vents of the um, air conditioner, right, to dry them out, right? It's what you do. But the problem is those air conditioners run on cooling water, and so it was just cold and damp. One in particular was a headband. You know what a headband is? Like you work out, the fitness was the theme. And it was stuck in there. And it wasn't my son, but it was another one of the boys. And it was just like, I went, oh, what's this? And I went, oh, ugh. Like, you know that reaction, the gut reaction that kind of happens, right? If you've ever had like fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth, twenty, thirty-year-old guys, you know those kind of moments, right? And so I thought that was offensive to me. But here's what I want to talk about just for a moment. And then we're going to get into the particular topic that we're going to talk about today. Is that for most of the world, one of the most offensive things to them is the gospel itself. Now, most of us that grew up in church, we don't think of the gospel as offensive. We think, I mean, it's sweet, it's loving, it's caring, it's gentle. But for most of the world, the gospel itself is offensive. It's not me that said that. The, the Apostle Paul said that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to put that up on the screen here. It says, when we preach Christ crucified, that's what Paul says. That's what we preach, Christ crucified. That's what I preach. That's what this church believes, Christ crucified. And it says, it is a stumbling block, and we'll get back to the words in parentheses, to Jews and folly to Gentiles. What Paul says is, this gospel that we preach, that Jesus Christ was crucified is a stumbling block. The actual word there is scandalon. It's like a scandal. It is unheard of. It is unbelievable. It is something that we can't wrap our minds around. The Jewish people are like, our God would not die like that. And to the Gentiles, it says folly, but the actual word is moronic. You, you ever been called a moron? You ever called somebody a moron? Like, that means... Just completely moronic, 
Horrible. Right? Like, unlearned. Like, we don't use the word stupid in our house. Right? That's the bad word. But that's what it is. That's what it means. Just not wise at all. And Paul says, what we preach to both Jews and Gentiles. I don't know if you understand biblical kind of um, categories of people, but that's everybody. To Jews, it's a scandal. And to the Gentiles, it's moronic. Now, if the gospel of Jesus Christ was a stumbling block, a scandal in the first century, was moronic in the first century, as we've arrived in the 21st century with all our technological advancements and human progression, it seems even more a scandal and moronic today. To those who are called Jews and Gentiles, Christ is our power. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You think, well, what makes it a scandal? What makes it moronic? And and a simple answer to that is that everything about the gospel goes against everything that we want to be true. And it starts at the very beginning. You don't have to turn there. We'll we'll get to where we're going in just a minute. But you know Genesis 1-1. You know that verse, right? What's Genesis 1-1? What does it say? In the beginning, God created. Now, let me ask you a question. If you create something, to whom does what you created belong? The creator, right? And so in the beginning, when it says, in the beginning, God created, that means every bit of creation belongs to God. And here's a little thing. We are part of creation. And so what Genesis 1-1 claims that goes against everything we want to be true is that we belong to somebody else, which means we are accountable to somebody else, which means somebody else is an authority over us. And we live trying to be self-sufficient. And I mean, the American dream is to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and get to where we need to go. And at the very beginning, God says, no, 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 this is you're my creation. And then it goes on to say that God has expectations for his creation and that every single one of us fails in that. Right. And our society just says, well, what? There's, I'm not accountable to anybody. I'm not accountable to any authority. I don't have a God over me. And I especially don't think I've fallen short of what I need to be. A guy that is is the current president of the International Mission Board and for who I'm deeply indebted for even the thought of this series and some of the content of this series, a guy named David Platt. He's written several books, but he says this about our society. He says, tell any modern person that there is a God who sustains, owns, defines, rules, and one day will judge him or her, and that person will balk an offense. Any person would, and every person has. That's our natural reaction to God. So in Genesis 1, you have this place where God creates. And you you know the story. He creates and it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. And then he gets to the last day and he creates man and he says it's very good. He creates Eve and he creates Adam and Eve together to be together. And he gives them just really a few basic rules about existence. And one of them is that there's this tree in the garden for which they cannot eat. Because eating of the tree means that they have eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? Y'all know this story, right? And the serpent comes and they tempts Eve and Eve takes a bite and hands it to Adam and Adam takes a bite and sin enters the world. And every since then we have rejected what God wants us to do. Now, here's the truth about that. Even in that first rejection, 
what they were desiring, what they were wanting, was not just to know good and evil, but to be part of determining good and evil. And from the very beginning, God said he is the determiner of good and evil. And so you have offensive to our modern mind that there is a creator. Secondly, that he knows what good and evil is. And third, that we are accountable to it and we fail. But we know the gospel, right? What happens? Who comes and saves us? Three of you knew that answer. That's good. Good. Who, who comes and saves us? It's okay to say Jesus in church, right? Jesus comes, right? And that sounds great for us. It is amazing. And it sounds like Jesus is a great man. Jesus Loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world, right? Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me, right? This sounds great, but here's the thing. We tend to forget that we're talking about a Jewish carpenter from a hick town that didn't accomplish a whole lot without getting killed in the first century. To these people, to the Gentiles, they're like, hey, man, listen, your life in eternity depends on your belief in this 30, this Jewish carpenter who got killed when he was 30 because he didn't do what the authorities wanted him to do. Are you going to trust in him? We think of it as this glorified picture of Jesus. But again, David Platt puts it in a different way. This is what he says. He says, imagine taking a successful, well-dressed American man with a nice job, big house, cool car, and a free-thinking American woman who thrives on her independence and led them to a garbage dump where a naked man hangs by nails on a tree covered in blood and telling them, there is your God. They'll laugh at you, maybe feel sorry for him, and almost certainly move on with their lives. When we were out in Los Angeles, um, uh, the group kind of got ahead of us, and Mike Allen and I were helping to pass out sandwiches. Now, Mike was very motivated to pass out sandwiches to the homeless community, primarily because um, it was very heavy on his back. Mike said, when you get home, tell everybody how motivated Mike was when he had 30 pounds of lunches on his back to get them all away, all right? And so we're passing out lunches, and Mike, I don't know if you've ever been around Mike, like at all, but like in that situation, Mike's just a little bit uh, Mike, all right? And so he's just walking around and he's just like, it didn't matter. A person could be perfectly normal human being, non-homeless walking down and he's offering them lunch at this point, all right? Free lunch, you want it, we got to get it. And so he sees this one guy though and he walks up to him and he says, because homeless, I said, yeah. He said, I'm going to go over there. And he said, went over there and he gave him his bag and he talked to him for a second and Mike said, but do you know Jesus? And the guy said, oh yeah, 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 I, I, I know him well. Um, I'm God. And Mike said, well, now, how the, how's that working out for you, man? That's, that's interesting. Now, see, what's the natural reaction for a guy that claims to be God that we know that's a homeless man sitting on the side of the street? He'd think he's nuts. Certifiably insane. We walked down Santa Monica Pier. There was a guy dressed in a full beard with a crown of thorns on, had a sign that said Jesus, and he was playing 90s rock songs. Asking for donations, right? What's your first thought about that guy? Either savvy businessman or absolutely nuts, right? So why is it any different for a guy that was a carpenter in Galilee who got hung on a tree naked outside of town with all the rest of the criminals? See, that's what our society thinks. The gospel is offensive. And we live in a culture that is increasingly coming to the conclusion that what we think 
to be true is nuts. And as it increasingly becomes that direction, it's going to be increasingly difficult for us in a public forum to speak out for what we believe. I feel like because people have been in and out, I've been in and out, we kind of need to review where we've been this summer. And we started in the month of June looking at the book of Daniel and asking the question, how do we live for God in a culture and a society that is set against us and him? If you remember, we had four things that we talked about that we needed to do and that Daniel had. First of all, he had a resolve that he was going to say that this is not right. This is not what I'm going to do. I'm going to stand firm on what God has asked me to do. We talked about the hope that Daniel had, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had, that even if God doesn't save me, I'm not going to praise you because I trust in my God that much. The hope that we have in Christ after this life supersedes anything that we believe or know now. The humility that we must have. We must serve people and care for them and love them. That Daniel was a God that served his king so well that the kings always wanted him to be right. And then the wisdom that comes from God in situations where we've got to make decisions. And so we did that in the month of June. And then starting last week and in the month of July and August, we're going to look at particular hot topics, interesting topics or difficult topics. Um, I'll be honest with you, coming off the center kid, I was looking for an easy one this week. We're not doing an easy one this week. There's not an easy one to do. And so in the weeks ahead, we're going to look at things like um, racial reconciliation and how the church ought to be involved in that. We're going to look at poverty and orphans and widows and trafficking and how we as a church ought to be involved in those kind of things. Last week we started talking about religious liberty and I didn't mention a specific case that's kind of a, a big case, a landmark case, and it's a good landmark case because the Supreme Court ruled in favor of religious liberty and it's interesting because that case um, speaks to an issue that we're going to talk about today. Last year, there was a case where a company um, didn't want to give his employees all that was required under the Americans Affordable Care Act. And so they sued and went to court and challenged all the way to the Supreme Court. You may remember what company that was? Hobby Lobby, right? Or as some of my grandparents used to say, Hobby's Lobbies, all right? So Hobby Lobby, and they also were joined in the suit by this Canastaga Wood Specialties. And here's the thing. Now, if you read the, the most of the news, you'll see that it was over birth control, and that's partially right. But it's not just strictly somebody that says, we don't want to get pregnant right now, and so I'm going to go on birth control. That's not what it was about. Uh, Hobby Lobby and Canastaga Wood said that they were not going to provide for their employees not just the birth control pre but the birth control post-conception. So they weren't going to provide for their employees the pills, the tools, the resources to end the life of a child that had already been conceived. And at the heart of the issue was this understanding that life begins at conception in the womb and any time after that, it is not God's will for us to take that life. That was the issue. Now, the Supreme Court ruled that they were a closely held company. That meant that the family owned it. The family believed it. This one, 50 people and two of them decided they wanted to do this. They weren't trying to get out of it just so they didn't have to pay stuff. That they were looking for ways to explore their Christian faith in the midst of that. And so the Supreme Court, on a five to four decision, which is a little uh, disconcerting that it was five to four, 
said that Hobby Lobby did not have to provide that. As I was reading all of that kind of information about the case and all that was happening, I couldn't help but be brought back to this issue of abortion. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Psalm 139. We're going to talk today about the issue of abortion. And here's what I want to do with us, all right? And this, I'm going to kind of give you our roadmap. Uh, in a book that was written a few years ago that lots of business people use, church people use to kind of talk about how to move to the next level, a book called Good to Great by Jim Collins. The first thing that he says you have to do if you ever want to move forward in business or in life or in a church or any setting is you must confront the brutal facts. Here's what I want to do today. I want to confront the brutal facts of abortion at the beginning. I want to look at what God's Word says about life in the womb in the middle. And then I want to talk about God's grace and mercy and how we as a church respond to it on the other end. Okay? And Psalm 139 is... Um, I feel like I, I really feel like I say this every week. Psalm 139 is one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. Like every week, it's like this. And it's just because, and I don't know if you're all reading the Bible. I don't know if you do that on a regular basis. But it is so good, right? It's so good. Just so good. And so you read it and you try to, to, to find, and this is one of, my, one of my favorite passages. In fact, when I was a, a young pastor, I'm, I'm, a, I'm very fortunate today. We have special guests, and y'all don't even know. They're, they're, to many of y'all, y'all would know who they were. But to me, life-changing special guest this morning. Um, a guy that was my spiritual mentor growing up, Mike McCullough, who's down here sitting with Susan and his, and his wife, Carol. And Mike was, out of just about anybody else in the world, there's probably nobody outside my parents and the Lord who are more responsible for who I am. And so if you want to thank him afterwards or you want to blame him afterwards, it's whatever you want to do, all right? Mike was my spiritual mentor literally from like seventh grade through college. And uh, we've, um, Mike's still doing ministry, but Mike can attest to this. When I, was, when I was first starting preaching, every time I got up to preach, I would open my Bible to Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, and recite, search me, O God, and know me. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me the way everlasting. I still love those verses because they talk about, here's my heart, Lord. Let, you know, speak truth. Let me hear. But that's based on an understanding from the first part of Psalm 139 that God knows us intimately and has known us intimately from the moment we ever were thought about. And we're going to look at Psalm 139 in a minute, but before we do that, I just want you to hear some of the brutal facts about abortion in America and the world today. This week, while I was, um, I was preparing for this message in a dorm room at Shaco Springs Conference Center in Alabama, and as I was preparing, there were moments when I had to stop and, and, and reread, like, that, that can't be true. Here's some stats. First of all, since 1973, that's when Roe v. Wade was ruled on and abortion became legal. So many of us in this room um, do not remember when abortion was not legal in this country. Many of you also do remember. But since 1973, over 45 million abortions have occurred in America. Just to kind of break that down for you, on the current pace, that is about 1.4 million abortions a year or one abortion every 20 to 25 seconds. Anybody remember the World Twin Tower Trade Center 9-11? Anybody remember that day? Anybody know how many people were killed that day? Somewhere around 3,000. In a day in America, 
somewhere around 3,800 abortions happen. So every day in America, seven days a week, 365 days a year, more abortions happen in a day than the people that died in the Twin Towers. In the world, it's worse. In the world, 42 million abortions happen every year, or 115,000 every day. Remember Haiti a few years ago, the hurricane that came through Haiti? Somewhere around 150,000 people were killed in that aftermath that people are still sending teams down to to take care of. That's a day and a half in the abortion count. Remember the tsunami that wiped out much of Southeast Asia, somewhere around a quarter of a million people, 250,000. That's like two and a half days. So every two and a half days, that many abortions happen. And it just is on repeat. And this next one, don't put it up yet, but the next one is the stat that floored me. Because in America, and this is the most conservative stats that, that I could find, and I'll look for others. But in America, one, you can go ahead and put it up, one out of every three women have had an abortion. Now, now here's what I want to say about that real quickly, okay? That means that there is a high likelihood that as I'm speaking right now, I am speaking to someone who has had an abortion in their life. And here's what I want you to know, okay? I want to be very sensitive to that. I want to be pastorally sensitive to that. I want to be biblically sensitive to that. And here's what I want you to know. I want you to stick with me because we're going we're gonna to look at some stuff that may be difficult for you. In fact, um, I read a statistic this week that said that people that have had an abortion and attend church, 85% of them say they are not over it. I don't know what over it means. But in that statistic, they said 85% said they still carry stuff with them. In fact, abortion has been called the silent killer because not only is a child killed in silence, but that often the, the, the mom carries that with her almost to her grave. So I want to be very pastorally sensitive to that and tell you this. We're going to talk, we're going to talk seriously about what God says about it. We're going to talk seriously about the reality of it. And we're going to look at it from God's word. And I'm going to do that for a couple of reasons. First of all, I'm going to do that for anybody that ever thinks about it. I want them to think clearly about it and biblically about it. Now, I want us as a church to think biblically and clearly about it. Um, it concerns me that in our culture at large, it's not as much of a discussion as it once used to be. And so, so we're going to confront some brutal facts. But if, if you're here and you're one of those people, maybe you never told anybody, maybe you, maybe you, um, maybe your best friend knows and that's all. Maybe, maybe your husband or your wife doesn't know your, that you had an abortion or you carried a girl to get an abortion or you supported a girl that you got pregnant to get an abortion. Maybe they don't know that. But I, I just want you to stick with me because we're going to come out the other side, okay? And we're going to talk about some things at the end, but we can't do that until we talk about the brutal facts. Psalm 139. Before we get there, you, we're going to look there in just a minute, starting in verse 13. Uh, there was this verse that stuck out to me, and it's from Psalm 78. And it says, we will not hide them. They're talking about God's great works from their children. We will tell the coming generation of the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. It goes on to say this. But you commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children. And I, that, that phrase just stuck out to me, that children yet unborn. And, and um, I was reading some commentaries and stuff, and it just said, how can we carry the message to the generation of the children not yet born when we are killing one every 20 to 25 seconds? 
It's just impossible. And so today as we look at Psalm 139, what I want us to look at is to seriously see what God's Word says about the child inside and what abortion is to God. So Psalm 139, starting in verse 13, says this. For you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Those words formed, knitted, made, they all speak of creation. They all speak of God doing something, um, enacting something, molding something. The, the formed is almost like a pottery wheel that's, that's forming something out of a blob of nothing into something magnificent. The, the knitted is literally like people knitting together. And I, I don't knit. I've never darned, knitted, sewed, any of that. But from what I know is, that doesn't happen overnight. Like there's painstaking care taken in it. That, that these made, the, the picture there is literally of something coming together out of nothingness into something glorious that God has done. He is the creator. Next verse. Wonderful are your works. The idea is there, everything you've ever made is great. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. You have to understand that in the culture in which they were living, there weren't um, pregnancy tests, there weren't doctor's tests that could tell them you were pregnant. It, you found out you were pregnant when you started to show that you were pregnant. And so there was a time for sure when the child was forming inside of the mother's womb that it was hidden and secret, and yet God says, I knew it. Intricately woven into the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, yet there was none of them. What this passage of Scripture teaches us is that there is a creative nature of God, that He is creating and weaving and working in a masterpiece of you. And that every work that He does is a creative, genius masterpiece, including you. And that he has a relationship even with the child that is in secret in the womb. And so two things about abortion real quickly. We're going to talk about God and we're going to talk about the church. First of all, abortion attacks God's authority as creator. God is the creator. He is the giver of life. He is the one who has the power and authority to give life. A husband and a wife can determine that they want to try to have a child, but they cannot do that on their own. God must be the one that grants life. And just as he is the one that grants life, he is also the only one that has the authority to take life. He gives. He takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But only he gives and only he takes. And it's not just the act of creation happening. It is the beauty with which he does it. I mean, his creation, there are just moments that knock, knock you on the ground with their beauty, right? right we were driving back uh, in Los Angeles from our work site in El Segundo. And there's this particular place that as you come around a curve off of one of the big interstates, as you come around the curve, you kind of see this open field. And when we came around the curve to this open field, there was a sunset that cannot be described. People took pictures of it. I wasn't going to put a picture on the screen because it does not do it justice. And when you look at that, I'm just astonished. 
at the beauty of God's creation. And yet scripture teaches us that the height of creation is not Mount Everest. It's not a beach sunset. It is not that sunset that we saw coming off the interstate. The pinnacle of his creation is you. Beautifully woven together. To the point that it says that our creation brings forth praise. I praise you, God, because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I do have one picture. I'm not going to do a lot of pictures. We're not going to do all that. But I do want to show you one picture. This is a child at the end of the first trimester of pregnancy. You know what's remarkable about that? I mean, the whole process is remarkable. I mean, a couple of cells come together, and in three weeks you got this. Eyes, heartbeat, fingers that are formed, toes that are formed, brain that is processing information already. When you look at, we've had, you know, four kids, we've had ultrasounds with them all, and there is that phase when they look a little alien, all right? Like in the ultrasound, they turn their face. Anybody, you know, you've seen those, right? You didn't see those? Have you seen those? Tell me yes if you've seen them. Okay, so there are those. But then when you see, I mean, there's always something that every one of our kids has done in that ultrasound that we're just like, I can't believe they're already doing that. Grabbing the cord, sucking the thumb, the heartbeat, the blood flowing. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, created and knit together by God. I joke about going to Center Kid with all those boys, but here's what I can tell you. It is amazing to me to get in a group of boys and to see the differences in their personalities and the way they look and the way they act. And some of those we would like to do away with, but they're there. I don't mean the kids. I mean the personality traits, all right? Because we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And abortion is ripping out a precious creation of God. It's not just an attack on his authority as creator. It's also an attack on God's intimate relationship with the unborn. Did you hear how Psalm 139 describes it? That God knows every day of our lives before one of them has been written. That when we were in the dark, in the secret, when nobody knew, God knew. Before the test reveals, God knew. Even in our modern society, when you can find out just days after conception has happened and the child is growing, before the test can show it, God knows. And if God knows, and if God is available to know and to see, then what we know is He is intimately in relationship with that child. I mean, the crux of the issue with abortion is this. Is what is growing inside of a mother's womb a person or not? Because let's be honest, if that's not a person, then you don't need any justification for abortion. But if that is a person growing inside of a mother's womb, then no justification comes close to being okay. And that's the issue. And when you look at Psalm 139, you get the very clear picture that God is not saying, Oh, fetus, how I covered you in secret. He's not talking the language of science and distance. He's talking the language of personhood and intimacy. And God 
adores the unborn child in the womb. And abortion is an attack on that. Listen, see, sometimes we try to make this a political issue, right? I mean, are you Republican or Democrat? Are you for abortion or against it? Are you, or what, what do you think? Where, what, what about in this instance? What about in that instance? And, and they throw up instances of like 0.5 or 1% of all pregnancies and say, well, see there, that shows that you can't have restrictions. But this is not a political issue. I'm not giving a political speech. I told you last week, I don't care about that, right? I do not want to run for political office. And God, God's people said, I said, amen, whatever, whatever you say. I don't want to run for political. I'm not trying to give a political speech. This is God's. This is a God issue. And we know this, that in, with God's hatred of taking of innocent life, that God hates abortion. And we also know that he is the one that is ultimately the judge. If we acknowledge that he is creator, then we acknowledge that he is the judge of our sin. And I believe that God sees what is happening in our country. And he sees that it is against his will and he weeps. And it's not just, I believe that if, you, if you've had an abortion, I do think that that is a sin before God. I think if you've, um, if you've driven someone to abortion, if you've provided money for an abortion, I believe that that's a sin before God. I believe if you fight to continue to keep abortion legal, it's a sin. I believe if you're a pastor and you don't specifically and boldly proclaim that it's wrong, that I sin. And just to be real honest, I've had some time with the Lord this week. I I didn't want to do the sermon today. This is, I mean, Jeff sent me a text middle of the week. Hey, what are you preaching on this week? Trying to get songs together. And I said abortion. So songs about that, which you're not going to do, right? They don't have those. I try to think of other topics. Well, maybe we get back from Century Kid. I just wrap up what we learned at Century Kid. And the Lord convicted me and said, to not speak out is to sin. And this issue in particular is near and dear to the heart of God. God is the judge of sin. Now, I told you, stick with me, because I firmly believe there's someone in this room that has driven someone, has supported someone, has given someone, has talked someone into, or has had an abortion themselves. And so I understand, and I want to be sensitive to that. And so I ask you to stick with me, because here's the good news. God is the judge of sin, but he is also the savior of sinners. And he hates the sin of abortion, but he loves the people that have had them. And our God desires to completely restore you. You don't need to live like the 85% that have lived their lives in the shadows of guilt. Four things about our God being the Savior of sinners. We're going to put them up on the screen, I think. He forgives entirely. The book of Isaiah says that he takes our sin and he remembers them no more. They are as far as the east is from the west. I don't know if you've done geography very much, but you can't go east until you get west. You just keep going east. And that doesn't mean that God somehow has amnesia or is developing dementia. It means that he knows that it is there and he chooses to not remember it or count it against you. He forgives you completely. 
In fact, that is more amazing to me than just forgetting. If you just forget, you don't have to worry about it anymore. But he constantly chooses not to remember the sins that I have done in my life. Praise be to God. He heals deeply. He doesn't just heal on the surface. He doesn't just kind of heal. He doesn't give you uh, uh, something to put on it and not address the deep hurt that is happening. He completely heals people. Sets them free. He restores completely. It's not just that He heals. He restores you to back as if it had never happened. He gives you hope and a future. He redeems fully. He purchases us back completely. He doesn't let Satan have any hold on what's been there in the past. And so if you're here and you're one of those people, maybe you haven't advocated as much as you should. Maybe you haven't um, spoken out as much as you should. Maybe you've been somebody that's had an abortion or been close to someone and encouraged them. God can forgive. God can heal. God can restore. God redeems. He is desiring to make you whole. Maybe you're here, you're not a believer in Jesus Christ and that's part of your past or it's not. Then you're looking for answers somewhere. Only God can heal. Only God can forgive. Only God can restore. Only God can redeem. And He loved us enough to send His Son for our sins. So what do we do? As a church, as people in this society, what do we do? Three things and then we're done. First of all this, we confront the brutal facts. Maybe those statistics to you were, oh yeah, I knew that, that's not a big deal. Man, they floored me. I just think about 20 to 25 seconds. I've been talking how long? Some of you are like an hour and a half. No, not that. 20 minutes, 30 minutes. So if you say 30 minutes, I've been talking 30 minutes. And you just go every 30 seconds. That's 60. In the time that I've talked, 60 abortions. Those are brutal facts. And that's just in America. If you count the world... You're somewhere around 1,800. Confront the brutal facts. Don't hide in the sand. Don't say this is an issue. I mean, if you read, and this is an amazing thing, and, and, and there's some credit needs to be given, even to current administration and other things. The number of abortions are declining in America right now. We give praise to God for that. We don't give praise to God that they're still happening. We do give praise to God that they are declining. The percentage and the number are declining. But our goal is not less abortions. Our goal is no abortions. Confront the brutal facts. Secondly, do this. Speak for those who cannot. In Scripture, one of the highest values of character that you can find is to be able to give a voice to those who are voiceless, to the orphans and the widows. We'll talk about those in a couple of weeks. The the voice to those that cannot speak. And there is no one, no one, That is more helpless and speechless than a child in the womb. And part of what we do as believers in Jesus Christ is we give a voice to the voiceless. Speak for those who cannot. And here's the last thing. Reach out. I'm going to give you two real practical ways to reach out, all right? The first one's going to be real, real easy. And the second one's going to be real, real hard, okay? So at least you can do the easy one, right? Apparently not. You can do the easy one, right? Okay, here's the easy one. Support places, support places that provide services 
for young women in trouble. In some of your Sunday school classes, there is a baby bottle every week. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about, but in some there's a baby bottle every week. And in a lot of weeks it's, oh, we'll put a couple of cents in. Here's a couple of cents. There's a couple of cents. And we give that. And does anybody know where that goes in our church? How many of you have a baby bottle in your Sunday school class? Okay. Where does that go? Pregnancy center. Anybody know which one? Cumberland Pregnancy Center, right? So it's up in um, Hendersonville, Gallatin. It's a great place. Support places like that. Give to places like that. Volunteer in places like that. Help in places like that. I, I talked to a church member who I won't name just because of the sensitivity of, of what's happening. But um, they had someone in their family who, um, as a teenager, discovered they were pregnant. Went to Cumberland Crisis Pregnancy Center, walked through a program with them, gave the baby up for adoption. The child is in a great home being cared for, and they are going to, in a couple of weeks or three or four weeks or sometime, they're going to be able to see the child for the first time and it arrives. It's a great place. And here's the second one. Allow the Lord to position you to be willing to adopt. The church of Jesus Christ should be the largest adoption agency in the world. Primarily because if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been adopted by Jesus into his family. And there are, we'll talk about orphans and we'll talk about that coming up and we'll talk a little more in depth about this. But allow yourself to be in a place that if it meant a child coming into the world or not, that you would be in a place to allow him into the world. Some of you are like, that would be the story of Abraham and Sarah. I'm too old. You're never too old to do what God calls. So reach out. In just a moment, Jeff and the band are going to come and they're going to lead us in a time of response. It's kind of a different, this whole series is a little different because we're not... Um, We're not walking through scripture. We're talking about issues, but perhaps you're here and you just need a chance to pray. Maybe it's what you what I've said, that that that's in your past and and you want to come and and to pray about that or talk to me about that. Or maybe you're one of those issues that I just never wanted to deal with that. I didn't want to get the political debate about that. I didn't want to worry about that. That's a cultural issue. And today you've been convicted about it. You want to come pray. Maybe it's that God has laid on your heart in the past and you've kind of pushed it aside about adoption and what God is going to do with that. And, and, and for some reason, God's putting that before you now. Maybe it's you are here and you've never given your heart and your life to Jesus Christ. And today is the day that you need forgiveness, restoration, redemption, and love. And you want to do that right now. Maybe you're here and this is the church where God is providing a place and you are ready to plant your life here. Whatever it is, I'm going to pray. The band's going to play. And as they play, if you need to respond, you respond. Let's pray together.